Let me ask you, if you would, to take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 13 for the sake of our guests. We are in the last week of our series in Ezra and Nehemiah. This has been an astounding series for us to remind us of of how God gives new beginnings to his people. Um, and before we just jump right into chapter 13, I think setting the table will help us as we bring to mind the things that God has done. Um, I think this chapter will make a whole lot more sense to us as well as we are remembering what God has done and where we find ourselves this morning. So let me, let me begin by saying the events of the book of Nehemiah have largely taken place in one year's time. So think of it this way. Chapter 1 through chapter 12, the last chapter is chapter 13 where we are today. Chapters 1 through 12 basically happened in roughly a year, year and a half, somewhere like that. 4.45. The the date doesn't really matter. Um, But we know that it was that time because that was the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes. Who was that guy? He was the king of Persia. And when God's people were carried off into exile, um, some people served in Babylon, some went other places. And, and here, Nehemiah was serving as a cupbearer to the king. Now, that sounds like a strange uh, position. It was one who would test the food to make sure that everything was okay. They were a trusted individual in the lives of the king. And so, in the year 445, Nehemiah hears about the destruction of Jerusalem, and he weeps at the destruction of Jerusalem because this is God's holy city. The temple, it's been destroyed. The walls are broken down, and Nehemiah is called to come and rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. At one point, after the wall is built and it's dedicated, at one point, Nehemiah goes back to serve the king of Persia. We know that for a couple of reasons. Well, first of all, in our chapter, we'll read it. And also in chapter 9, he appoints his brother to be in charge of Jerusalem. So what we're about to read this morning is like 11 or 12 years later after the wall of Jerusalem was dedicated. Now, you may recall, if you were here last week, chapter 12 is like this glorious chapter because the wall is being dedicated People are happy in the Lord. There was shouting and joy that was so far they could hear it counties away. It said the joy of the Lord was reverberating from that place. And, you know, if I were authoring the Bible, which thank God I'm not, um, but if I were authoring the Bible, I might be like, hey, this is a nice place to stop the story because everyone's happy, there's joy, it's really loud, and, and there's a, a joyful party happening in, at the end of chapter 12. He's like, let's just end the book there. Well, God is real, meaning he wants us to get the real story. And the real story is that there were some challenges still with the people of Israel. Like this book of Nehemiah doesn't just end all with this nice bow at the end. In fact, there's some challenges in this chapter But there is an amazing grace as well in this chapter. And we're going to see it as we read it together. So again, just to recap, uh, this is 12 years after the wall was dedicated. So you think between chapter 12 and chapter 13, there's a 12-year gap. And now we're picking it up um, here in chapter 13, the last chapter. As I read from the Word of God, I remind you that this is no mere uh, man's recorded word. These are the words of the Lord. They are perfect. They give us perfect instruction. And so let us listen with hearts that are open to what God wants to say to us today. Nehemiah chapter 13. And on that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Verse 4. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chamber of the house of our God, 
and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were commanded, given by commandment, to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw out all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasures over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and their assistant Hanan as the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and lodging them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no loads might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite, therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus, I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I establish the duties of priests and Levites, each to his work. And I provided for the wood offering at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, 
for good. Would you take a moment and pray with me? Lord, we need your help in order to comprehend what's going on in this passage. Lord, we open our hearts to you, believing that you have preserved this word for us to hear it today. And so, Lord, now, as we submit our hearts to your word, open us up to what you want to teach us, to what you want to instruct us through this account, which you have saved so that we can hear it today. We pray for your help by your Holy Spirit and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, you might be thinking, especially if you're a guest, you're coming in here, it's like, what in the world are we talking about? And secondly, uh, how does this have any bearing on my life today? If you had that thought, I would not blame you because there's a lot going on in this passage that perhaps sounds you know, let's be honest, quite foreign to us, quite outside of our regular experience. We're not dealing with grain offerings. We're not dealing with the temple. We're not, we're not dealing with a lot of these things. And so here's, here's what I believe God is doing in chapter 13 of Nehemiah at the end. He is giving us a picture that isn't quite so pleasant. He's giving us a picture of his people who had dedicated themselves unto him and, and actually took oaths to say the very things that we just read, we're not going to do that. We, we oath before you, God. We, we're going to write it down in the covenant. We won't do these things. They said that all in chapter 10. That's all that chapter 10 is about, as we'll see in a moment. Um, and now 12 years later, here they are. They're doing the very things that they promised to God that they wouldn't do. And so in one sense, you might think, Wow, God, this is a really a downer of a chapter. And like I said earlier, not exactly the way I might choose to end the book. But there is a glorious thread of grace that runs through this story. And uh, I believe that as we go along, we'll see that glorious thread of grace. And, and here it is, that, that the grace of God is greater than all of our sin. The grace of God that forgives people of their sin is greater than all of our failings. That even when we we consecrate ourselves to God, we may once again fall into a pattern of sin. We don't want to do that. But even when we do, God's people are held secure. This is what we heard this morning. That that Spurgeon quote was like, Wow, that dovetails so beautifully with what we're looking at this morning. Even when God's people are failing him, he holds us fast. And it's because of the greatness of his steadfast love. So what we're going to do today is basically look at two things. Number one, the deceptive power of sin. The deceptive power of sin. And secondly, the greatness of God's steadfast love. So let's talk about the deceptive power of sin. After having experienced the goodness of God, after seeing this wall be built once again, after feeling the joy of God's presence with his people, they they read the word of God. They responded to the word of God. They were, in fact, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted about ways that they had gone against the word of God. And the people of Jerusalem, they made this covenant, this oath to say, Lord, we're not going to do these things anymore. They, They repented which means to turn the opposite direction from their sin. They repented of their sin, and they said, no, we're we're not going to do those things anymore. We're going to face this way. Lord, we're going to do the things that, that you want us to do. And here we are now, 12 years later, and they're doing those very things. I want to highlight, not to emphasize it, but just so that you can see it afresh in this chapter, ways that we see this. So the first thing that they did, which they promised they wouldn't do, was to desecrate God's house. They were desecrating God's house. Um, in Nehemiah 10.39, I believe this is on the screen, they say together, they make this oath, and they say, we will not neglect the house of God. We will not neglect the house of God. They had promised to keep God's house, the temple, operating in a way that honored the Lord. And in our passage, how had they desecrated God's house. Well, because in verses 4 through 9, we read that this priest, his name was Eliashib, had desecrated the house of God 
by making living quarters for someone who was the very enemy of God. You remember Tobiah the the Ammonite? He was one with Sanballat, and they were continually making fun of the people of God, saying things like, oh, that wall is so flimsy. If a fox went on it, it'll crash it down. They They were making plans to do in the people of God, to harm the people of God. And, and how is it possible that now that very enemy of God, here he is, Tobiah, he's, he's actually taking up residence in God's holy temple. They were desecrating God's house. They were forsaking their giving. Look with me on, again on the screen uh, what it says in Nehemiah 10. This is where they're, they're again committing themselves. We obligate ourselves to bring in the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. And they talk about the tithe and all other things just for the sake of time. I, I just wanted to pull that one verse out. So, so they had promised God, we will give to you out of the first fruits of what we have. We're going to give to you the best, Lord. The first 10%, it goes to your temple for the operations of the temple. We're going to do that. We, we promise it, Lord. And yet here in verses 10 through 14, we see that that, in fact, isn't happening at all. Look at verse 10. And I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. What does that mean? It means that the Levites, the priests of the temple, they would have their food provided for by the offerings of the people. But since the people weren't bringing in their offerings, the Levites had to vacate the temple, leave their post, not do what God had called them to do, but instead go back to a field and cultivate it and tend it so that they could eat and feed themselves. That's what it's saying. They neglected, they they had forsaken the giving to the work of the Lord. Sin number three, they had profaned the Sabbath day. They had profaned the Sabbath day, Nehemiah 10.31. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. That's what the people had said. Like the Sabbath day, by the way, was the day that God had set up to bless the people of Israel. God did not create the Sabbath so that we'd be like, oh man, we gotta go to worship today. We gotta, we gotta take time off from work and, and think about God. No, God gave the Sabbath to bless us that we would have a day free from the travail of our day to day work and that we could set it aside to, to worship God, to, to set aside to, to think about Him and actually setting aside a day for worship and, and free of work it also makes this loud statement that, that our dependency is on, not on our ability to provide for ourselves, but we can let work go for a day because we know that God is going to provide for us. That's the spirit of the Sabbath, why God gave the Sabbath. But what they were doing is like, yeah, we, we don't really care about that, Lord. There's a good deal at the gates and we're going to buy and sell and trade and do everything like we do all other six days of the work week. They had profaned the Sabbath. And finally, um, this one continues to ratchet up in, in uh, you know, they were marrying unbelievers. And we know from Scripture, we have the full counsel of Scripture, that someone who professes faith in the Lord, um, you know, they're not to be wed to someone who doesn't believe in the Lord. That's, that's clear throughout all of Scripture. And God had made it really, really clear um, when we read that he didn't want others outside foreign influences. What he's, he's not talking about preserving a bloodline as much as he's saying uh, people who believe should not be married to people who don't believe. And this is what they were doing. They said in, in uh, Nehemiah 10.30, We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. So they're saying, we're, we're not going to marry off our kids, our believing kids, to people who don't believe in God. And yet what is happening here? He says, In those days I saw the Jews had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. They, they couldn't speak the language of Israel. They, they were... They were marrying people who didn't believe. And this was, this was an abomination to the Lord. 
because the Lord had made it plain that believers marry believers only. So why am I drawing this out? To make us or them feel bad? No, it's simply to say even the very things that they had covenanted with God, saying in chapter 10, hey, we, we are going to do this. We are going to do this. And, and I have every reason to believe that they fully meant it, that they meant to do the things that God had commanded. I believe that's true. And yet what happened? In that 12-year gap, some things happen. And I, I, I think God has, I believe God has preserved this word for us this morning because while we may not be able to relate directly to the things they might be struggling with in a particular way, there are ways that we also are tempted to yield ourselves to sin. So I want us to think about this in two ways. What, what do we learn from this? Well, there's two things. First of all, we must be aware of the creep of sin. We must be aware of the creep of sin. We make concessions to sin. Now again, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, I'm, I'm addressing people who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone to save them from their sins. And, and so in that sense, our, our sins are forgiven, the past, present, and even future sins. Uh, I'm speaking to you now who have faith in Jesus Christ. And yet even with our faith in Christ, we don't, we all know this, right? We don't live a perfect life. We can say, Lord, I don't want to do that. And then that's what we end up doing. So we must be aware of the creep of sin. Most of us, when we see sin, because our hearts beat for God and we love God, we're like, yeah, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that anymore. My heart is, my heart is to the Lord. And yet the very thing that we don't want to do sometimes is it's not true. Sometimes the very thing that we don't want to do is the very thing that we actually do. At the Thanksgiving table on Thursday, we uh, all my kids were in town. It was wonderful, um, and we got talking about uh, our tra- like where we like to travel. And my oldest daughter Elizabeth shared the story of a friend of hers from college who went to Niagara Falls. Um, and I, I had not heard this story before. And she said that, um, that sh- this friend, and there are two people there, this friend and her other friend, they were there, and they were just intrigued by the falls. And so they went, you know, to the, to the head of the falls, a little bit upriver, but just went to the head. And, you know, there's a barrier there, like a, you can't easily walk, but they're like, let's just get down near the water. And... Um, you know, though the signs say, you know, don't get near the water. The current is strong. And by the way, don't worry. This, this has a good outcome. Uh, this is, you know, be at ease. But there is a point here. So they get down near the water and, and the one girl gets, you know, really close. And I don't know what exactly happened, but she, she winds up falling into the water. Now, again, you know, the falls are down river a bit. And so they thought they were totally safe. But what she found in falling in right on the edge was that she was no longer in control. That the river river was so swift that it began to carry her. And if it wasn't for the fast action of her friend on the shoreline, who knows what would have happened. But thank God the, the friend took quick action and they were able to get her out. Sometimes, dear friend, is that not the way we trifle with sin, right? We think, well, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go over the falls. That would be ridiculous. I'm not doing that. But let, let me just, you know, let me just get a little closer. You know, let, maybe I just want to take the temperature of the water. Let me just, you know, I'm not gonna do that. But we make concessions, don't we? And we dabble with sin. We do put our toes in the water with sin. And sometimes we do jump in thinking, uh, uh, it's just this one time I will, I will confess this later. And, but what happens with sin is sometimes it has a stronger current than we're ever aware of. And what our little dabbling might become is not us feeling a little tug, but us losing control. And it happens one little step at a time. See, these Israelites in chapter 10, they were serious. 
Their, their hearts were really like, no, we are, we are not doing this anymore. We have sinned against you, God. So we're going to make an oath and we're going to seal it. And this is going to be official. And we're really dedicating ourselves to you. And, and again, I believe with all my heart that they meant it. They meant it. But how do we get here in chapter 13, 12 years later, when the very exact sins that they said they would not commit, now they are regularly committing. They're desecrating God's house. They're abandoning the tithe. They're marrying unbelieving people. They're yielding themselves to do whatever they want on the Sabbath. How do they get from chapter 10 to chapter 13? They weren't like keeping it all, all, you know, every night and every day until chapter 13. Then they wake up. It's like, I'm not doing it anymore. No, it's little concession at a time. A little dip of the toes in the swiftly moving river. And so, dear friends, I believe God has preserved this for us just to take this moment for self-evaluation, for self-examination, and to, to ask God, Lord, is there, is there any place in my heart where I am doing, where I'm putting myself in danger where I might be dipping my toes in or maybe even standing in this river of sin and, and I, I know I don't want to do this, chapter 10, but, but you know, I, I'm going to be okay. I won't be pulled along by the current. I'm going to be all right. I'll, I'll just dip in and dip out. God says to us, don't get near the river at all. And if there's anywhere in your heart where you're willfully now, just testing the waters in sin, I say to you, friend, brother, sister, get out. I say to myself, get out. Because we are far more vulnerable to sin than we think. Do you agree with me on that? Are you with me this morning? We are far more vulnerable to sin of every kind than we think. I am far more vulnerable to sin of every kind then you would think that I am. I am far, far more vulnerable. And so, you know, how do we get from chapter 10 to chapter 13? Little concessions at a time. Lord, just, just one glance. Lord, just, just one little morsel of gossip. Lord, I, you know, I'll apologize later. No. God, through his kindness, is giving us a picture of what, what happens when we don't guard our hearts carefully. And I know your hearts, Grace Community Church, is not to wind up a chapter 13 like this. Your heart is to be like, no, I want to love God by obeying Him. Well, me too. I'm with you, brother, sister. I'm with you. And the way that we guard our heart is to watch right now any ways in our hearts where we might be making concessions to sin. Listen to the Apostle Paul. I mean, this is not, by the way, this is not the Saul, the guy that's murdering believers, though that was his former life. This is, this is the regenerated Apostle Paul, the one who wrote more scripture than anyone else. Listen to what he says about the power of sin that he feels. He says, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, want to do, which is to please God. Those are my parentheses. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. If that's the heart of the Apostle Paul, one who fellowshiped with Jesus, one who walked with God, why do we think that that we aren't going to be tempted in real ways and then walk vigilantly. Now there is great joy in this in that the power of sin by believing in the gospel, the power of sin has been broken. So we do have the power. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to give us the power, praise the Lord, to resist sin. You and I can resist sin and yet there is this flow, this stream, this power to it. If we're not paying attention to our hearts, we can end up in chapter 13 among this testimony. They were not watching 
and keeping their hearts for the Lord. So we have to watch the creep of sin. Bit by bit it comes and it, it takes us along. And so, you know, it, let me just say this as clearly as I can. If you're aware of a particular sin, if the Lord even right now is drawing a particular sin to your mind, then can I just encourage you right now to repent of it? To say, Lord, I'm going to turn the other way from that. Yes, this is true. I'm allowing this sin to, to creep into my life. I'm, I'm sticking my toes in the river. And I still feel like I'm safe, but the Lord is giving you opportunity right now, even this moment, to say, Lord, I don't want to do that anymore. I repent of that sin. I repent. Please forgive me. And please help me to stand on solid ground. And, and he will. You know, when, when you ask him for help, our Lord is here to help us and to give grace to us and to enable us to walk. He wouldn't call us to walk. Hey, here's how I want you to be. Here's, here's how I want your heart to be. And then say, okay, good luck with that. I'm not going to help you. No, he wants to help us. And repenting is part of that help. And so we turn away from sin and we, we walk the other direction. The second observation about sin that I just want to make, I, I hope this can help us in the fight against sin, is this. We don't sin out of obligation, but out of unbelief. You and I, none of us, we don't sin because we feel like we have to, right? We don't yield ourselves to sin because like, oh, I guess I should, I guess I have to do this. No, we, we yield ourselves to sin because we have bought the lie of the enemy that says, hey, do this and it'll bring you pleasure. Just, just give yourself over to this. It looks good anyway, doesn't it? Just do that and you'll have happiness. You'll have joy. We don't sin out of obligation. We sin because our hearts are yielded to that thing that we think is going to bring us pleasure, but it never does. I mean, what has sin ever delivered on, ever, in the history of the world? It has never delivered on one promise. Oh, there may be momentary Immediate pleasure for a passing, fleeting moment. But sin never delivers on any of its promises. And so when I say we sin, none of us, we don't sin out of obligation, but out of unbelief. What do I mean by that? I'm saying this, that every word in, in this book is given for our good. So when God says to us, let's take the Ten Commandments, for example. When God gave the Ten Commandments, is he just trying to be bossy around the world? Or is he giving us patterns of life that flourish us and cause us to, to, to be blessed? I mean, every time I sin, dear friends, let me make this personal. Every time I sin, it's because I've bought the lie that whatever the sin might be is going to be better than obeying God. Do you see it? Like when I sin... I have bought the lie that doing that thing is going to make me happier, more fulfilled than if I would just simply obey what God has told me. And dear friend, you're just like me. None of us sin out of obligation, but out of unbelief. What do I mean by unbelief? Well, ultimately, if God's word is given for my good, then when I sin, I'm saying, God, your word says the opposite, but I don't really believe your word. I don't believe that it's good, and so I'm just going to go the other way. And I'm going to believe my assessment of what's good. And so sinning is, you know what sinning is? Sinning is taking the crown off King Jesus, and it's putting it on our heads. It's like, Lord, you don't really know what you're talking about here. Um, so I'm going to make the decision on what true pleasure is. And true pleasure means this and that. And we do our own thing, and in the process we forfeit the grace that God has for us. Do you see that? We, we don't sin because we're obliged to. We sin because we think it's going to yield us something better. And so may the Lord today, may he help us to believe his word. May he help me to truly believe that what he says for my obedience is for my good. May God help us as a church body to say no to the deceptive creep of sin and yes to faith and belief 
in the promises of God. See, this is exactly where God was concerned about Israel. He was after not their external obedience. He's like, I want all good children. No, he was concerned about what was going on in their hearts. And their hearts didn't believe that he was good. And therefore, they just abandoned what he said and did their own thing. So it is in our day as well. God, this morning, is looking at our hearts. He wants our hearts to be his. Because he says, I know what life is like. And he says, I know what you might be tempted to think by your own mind and by your own imagination. I know those things. Follow my word. I've given it to you for your good. And dear friends, I simply want to assure you I am preaching first and foremost to myself because I yield to sin in ways that I don't want to. And at the end of it all, it's because of unbelief. So there is this creep of sin going on in the life of the people of Israel. And now let me, let me just turn the corner. I, I pray that you would seriously take a moment to consider, is there any way that you're yielding yourselves on the bank of that swiftly flowing river Is there any way that you're yielding yourself to even small sins, what we might call respectable sins, sins that you don't think are so significant, but God does? The creep of sin can swallow us up, and God is here to ask us, is there any way you're yielding yourself? Repent, turn away from it, brother, sister. Don't yield yourself any longer. I know it's not that easy. Here's where the church comes in, right? We, we meet in care groups to support one another, to strengthen one another in this battle. You say, hey, brother, sister, would you pray for me? I have this struggle. I'm asking God to help me. I'm trying to believe the promise of God. But would you ask me next week at care group when we get together? Ask me how I'm doing in this because I want to fight it. And God's given me you to help me fight this by faith. That's what we want to be as a church family. So... What else do we see? We see this creep of sin. We also see the greatness of God's steadfast love. So turn with me or look with me, if you will, at the end of verse 22. At the end of verse 22. Nehemiah, by the way, he has these three prayers throughout the scripture. He he stops at the end and says, remember me, Lord. Remember me, Lord. Remember me, Lord. And this time at the end of verse 22, he says this, remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me. Now here, here are the words, according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. See, Over and above all of the sins that the people of God were committing was the steadfast love of the Lord. In other words, God doesn't love his people because they are perfect. He loves his people because he has set his love upon them. Amen? God doesn't love you this morning if you're in faith in Jesus Christ. He doesn't love you Because you didn't sin this week. He loves you because he sent Jesus to die for you. And he appointed you for salvation. The greatness of God's steadfast love is this. That even though we may struggle, right? We might might fight with sin. We might work hard to resist it. We might say, Lord, you have broken the power of this sin. You've given me the Holy Spirit so that I can be empowered not to do this anymore. Even when we yield to sin, God's steadfast love is upon us. Listen to just, there's a hundred scriptures I could use here, but let me just take a few. Psalm 32. Listen to this and be encouraged, Christian. Psalm 32, blessed, happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. This is the greatness of his steadfast love. And this is why Jesus came into the world. Now, so we're all 
um, were all ready for Christmas in our house yesterday. We were abuzz with a lot of different things, including um, putting up the most expensive Christmas tree I have ever bought in my entire life on Friday. How, I mean, are you aware of the, the cost of Christmas trees? Okay, I see some smiles. Um, I've never paid triple digits for a Christmas tree, and I did on Friday. I was like, what just happened to me? I felt robbed. But it, it's, it's a beautiful tree, and it's up, and, um, and we're all in the Christmas spirit. You know what we can very easily do is miss the whole purpose for why we celebrate Christmas. We can so easily get caught up in the, the fun stuff of Christmas, and it is fun to give gifts and those things, be together with family, but we can forget, we can lose sight of the main reason why we celebrate the Advent which means the coming of Jesus. It's this. It's because God created the world and he set Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden without any sin. And yet they yielded themselves to sin and broke the fellowship with God that he intended for them to have. And through Adam and Eve's sin, sin has come to us all. We are all born in sin. Every last one of us. In fact, I've never met a person who said, I never sin. I never have a bad day. I never do something wrong. We all sin and fall short of God's glory. And God, in his great mercy, for people who were rebels and traitors, I didn't want anything to do with God. And he came after me by sending his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. Jesus Christ, the God-man. He never sinned once. And yet he ended up on the cross dying for sins that I committed and you committed so that by his death, by believing in him, by placing our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we might have the forgiveness of sin, our past sins, the sins that we're committing even now and the sins that we commit in the future, past, present, and future. That's why the psalmist says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. I want to ask you this morning, are your sins covered by faith in Jesus Christ? Do you know that? Do you know that they are covered by faith in Jesus Christ? Because he wants us to know with certainty that our sins are covered and we have the covering of our sin by simply placing our faith in Jesus Christ, by repenting of our sin and saying, Lord, I agree with you. My sin is wrong. It's treason against you. I now go away from that sin. I turn away from it and I put all of my hope and all of my sins and I lay them at your feet and ask you to cover them. And you know what the word of God says? That everyone who believes in the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if you are saved, then you are blessed and your sins are forgiven. Listen to Romans 8.1, the Apostle Paul again. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Though our sins would condemn us otherwise through the forgiveness of Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. Do you know this? That if we resist God's offer to forgive our sins... And if we die, God will judge us in our sins and send us to a real place called hell. A real place called hell. And yet, there's an opportunity here, even this morning. With a room full of people like this, there there may be some who have yet to bow the knee to Christ. Say, Lord, I, I need your forgiveness. My sins are in front of me. And I want my sins to be covered. Oh, friend, if that's you, would you run to the cross this morning? Would you run to the cross, this cross of grace? Jesus took your place that you might be forgiven of your sins. And, And one more. This one has become so precious to me in the last month. This is Psalm 103. Listen to how God treats us as we are covered in our sin. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. When our sins are forgiven, when God has covered us, He no longer 
needs to repay us for our iniquities because they have been dealt with by the blood of Jesus Christ. He no longer needs to do that. And so what this means is that though the people of God, hear this church, though the people of God weren't performing all the things that they wanted to do, even though they were, they were in a, a drift away from the Lord, the steadfast love of God That love that doesn't change uh, given the day of the week. No, the steadfast love of God held the people of God together. And so again, if I were writing the book of Nehemiah and writing this story, I'd want to end on a happy high note. Like the end of chapter 12, they're all rejoicing. But instead, God gives us a real picture of his real people who sometimes, even though we don't want to, We step into that river of sin. But because of the greatness of his steadfast love for us, he carries us. If our faith is in Jesus Christ, he carries us all the way home. I grew up in northern Connecticut, and one of the songs that my church used to sing in the chorus, you know, uh, you'd have you'd have in our church um, people who who sang really nicely on pitch, um, people who uh, had some shrill voices, um, uh, people who I mean. But the bottom line is, all of, all of the people loved the Lord their God. And in my mind's eye and in my ear, uh, I can hear this song. I want to quote it for you. I'm not going to sing it for you. Uh, but I can hear certain ladies in the church like they they would trill out on certain places of this song but this this song encaptures i think what we're talking about here it goes like this marvelous grace of our loving lord grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt yonder on calvary's mount outpoured there with where the blood of the lamb was spilt and here's the chorus some of you know this song you're ready to sing it grace Grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. And so let me just ask you plain and clear this morning. Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone to save you from your sins? If yes, then your sin is covered. Your future is sure. Your eternal home will be with Christ. If you have not, can I plead with you this morning? Place your faith in Jesus Christ. Believe in him. Entrust your entire life to him. If God loved you enough as a rebel against him, if God loved you enough to send Christ into this world to die on your behalf, can you not now entrust your heart to him and turn away from sin and say, yes, Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my life. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Would you pray with me? Lord, this morning we see in the pages of Nehemiah, we see ourselves, Lord, quite frankly. Because as many of us have placed our faith and trust in in your Son, Jesus Christ, we have turned away from sin. And yet even at times, Lord, we confess that in our own weakness, we, we play on the shores of that river of sin. We think that we can dabble in it, maybe stick our toes in it, maybe even jump into it for a little while, thinking that we'll just jump right back out. But Lord, we sometimes we underestimate the power of sin to pull us along. And you have preserved this story of your people so that we could learn from it. And so even in this quiet moment at the conclusion of our time together, Lord, we ask 
Would you help us to see ourselves clearly, Lord? And Lord, if you reveal a way or ways that we are dabbling on the shores of sin, we're content with being really close to the current. In fact, we may actually even be in the current. Lord, we're asking that you would help us to get out and stay out. But Lord, the glorious grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that even when we do fail you, and we will fail, your grace is greater than the strongest sin. And so you have grace for us. Every one of us have failed. Every one of us has gone our own way. We're prone to wander, Lord. We feel that. And for all who are in Christ, we now receive grace to walk in the ways that you have for us because we know that you're good. We believe that you are good, that your word is going to send us in the right way. And so where there may be pockets of unbelief, as is evidenced by our sins, Lord, forgive us and help us to have a change of heart toward those things. And Lord, for anyone here who has not yet bowed their knee to to the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, we pray that today would be a day of salvation, even now. That we would turn away from any hope in anything else and lay all of our sins at your feet and say, Lord, I believe. Lord, would you grant faith today? Would you turn our hearts, every last heart in this room, turn our hearts to you? That our future may be certain. That our future may be filled with hope. That our future would be filled with you. So Lord, thank you for this book. Thank you for this story. Ezra and Nehemiah, a new beginning. God, that's what you're about. You make new beginnings. You take people who have lost perspective and you restore us by faith. So thank you for doing that, Lord. Thank you for doing it in my heart. Thank you for giving grace. Would your grace be upon us all? We ask these things together in Jesus' name. Amen.